we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what will cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. For Amado Carrillo Fuentes, the night was supposed to be a treat. He rarely had free time to spend with his wife and six children since he'd taken command of the Juarez cartel. When he and his family sat down at the Ochoa Valley High restaurant in the spring of 1995, Amado hoped it would be a respite from the violence that had dominated his professional life. Unfortunately, his rivals had other plans. It wasn't until the screaming started that Amato noticed the 12 policemen with machine guns storming through the restaurant's front door. Before he could react, the assassins opened fire. Horrified families rushed to the door, dodging the sprays of gunfire. When the chaos cleared, the hitmen stared down at the bullet-riddled body on the ground before them. Their target was dead. The Lord of the Skies was no more. Satisfied, they turned and fled the restaurant. Amato peeked out from the overturned table he and his family were huddled behind. Only a few feet away lay the body of an innocent man the killers had mistaken for their target. Amato couldn't believe how narrowly he'd escaped death. But he was sure of one thing. 
his enemies wouldn't be so lucky. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is our second episode on Amado Carrillo Fuentes, a Mexican narcotics trafficker active from the early 1980s to the late 1990s. Carrillo is considered among the most influential narcotics traffickers in history, as his leadership helped usher in the modern era of the Mexican drug war. This week, we'll take a look at Carrillo's time atop Mexico's cocaine trade and how his mastery of disguise led to his eventual tragic downfall. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Amato couldn't understand how it had come to this. Only two years had passed since his former mentor, Pablo Acosta, was killed by the Mexican police in 1987. Amato had promised himself he would be more careful about keeping the law on his side. But as the Guadalajara police snapped his mugshot in July of 1989, the 33-year-old drug lord wondered if he was about to meet the same violent end as his mentor. The Guadalajara Cartel's nationwide federation of drug traffickers was slowly breaking down as one by one its leaders were arrested. Amato was now among the cartel's most senior members and almost certainly its most important. It was his air fleet that allowed the cocaine to flow from Colombia to Mexico to the United States without incident. But suddenly it seemed like his power might be short-lived. Amato had fallen into police custody after being pulled over for a routine traffic stop. He faced a backlog of smuggling charges that could put him away for years. Amato spent nine months in jail awaiting trial, hoping the hundreds of millions of dollars he paid in bribes each year would be enough to save him. And then just days before his trial was scheduled to begin, the charges were dropped. The Guadalajara police reluctantly released Amato from custody. Amato stepped out into a Mexico that was much different from the one he'd left behind. While he was behind bars, the last remaining leader of the Guadalajara cartel, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, had been arrested. The nationwide operation was officially disbanded and the cartel's valuable Juarez territory was left to Amado Carrillo Fuentes. With the dissolution of Guadalajara's central leadership, Amado now answered to no one. Except, that is, Rafael Aguilar Guajardo, the one-time federal police commissioner who had taken over Ciudad Juarez 
after Pablo Acosta's death. The historical record isn't very clear on the relationship between the three men, but Amado, Rafael Aguilar, and Pablo Acosta seem to have worked together to set up an infrastructure in Juarez. After Acosta's death in 1987, Aguilar took the reins of the Juarez network, while Amado kept control of the Guadalajara cartel's interests in the area. Those interests included a fleet of repurposed commercial jets that served as the preeminent channel for shipping cocaine from Colombia to the Mexico-U.S. border. After his brief stint in jail in 1989, Amado went back to Juarez, started up his jets, and in the course of a few years, became one of the most powerful narcotics traffickers in all of South America. Amado had learned a great deal from his now dead mentor, Pablo Acosta, but no lesson was as valuable as the inner workings of his supply network. To cement his power within the narcotics world, Amado turned to an old contact, Hoover Salazar Espinosa, a key distribution coordinator for the Cali cartel. The Cali Cartel was a Colombian cocaine operation that served as the main competitor to Pablo Escobar's Medellin Cartel. Both Colombian cartels had been smuggling their product through Mexico for years, but with the United States' recent crackdown on drug trafficking through the Bahamas, the Colombians now had to rely on their Mexican counterparts more than ever. In 1992, Amado met with Salazar Espinosa to cement the relationship between Cali and Juarez. The agreement was simple. Amado would provide transportation and protection for Salazar Espinosa's cocaine shipments, moving it from Colombia to crossing points along the U.S.-Mexico border. For his trouble, Amato was paid a transportation charge of one kilo of cocaine for every two kilos he shepherded across the border. He then sold those drugs through his own distribution network and kept all the profits. Amato's successful arrangement with the Cali cartel soon saw him form a close relationship with one of the organization's founders, Miguel Rodriguez Orihuela. Miguel and his brother Gilberto operated with a level of professionalism that was completely foreign to Mexico. Their business empire, which also included banks, drugstores, restaurants, and soccer teams, was so sophisticated that the DEA called them the gentleman's cartel. Amado and Miguel spoke almost every day. It was a valuable education for Amado who had picked up some bad business habits from the rough-and-tumble Mexican drug world, like falling behind on payments for the cocaine he purchased from Miguel. Amado was a valuable and generally trustworthy business partner, so Miguel let it slide for a while. But when Amado's debts climbed up into the millions, he started to lose his patience. The stalling reached a crisis point sometime in 1992, when, after countless delays, Miguel Rodriguez expressed doubt about whether Amado ever planned on paying him. Amado saw this as an egregious insult. Sure, he was chronically late on his payments, but did Miguel really think he was the kind of person who would renege on his debts to a friend? If he really didn't believe the Lord of the Skies was able to pay all that he owed, Amado would prove him wrong, one way or another. 
It was early morning in 1992 when three hostages arrived outside Miguel Rodriguez's home in Cali, Colombia. He thought he recognized some of the men, though he couldn't be certain from where. It was only after the men transporting the hostages explained themselves that Miguel recognized them as three of Amado's foot soldiers. They had been kidnapped by Amado's own men in the dead of night. They were dragged from their homes, gagged and bound, and shipped off to Colombia as collateral. Amato intended it as a guarantee that he would pay back every penny he owed, and if he didn't, the Cali cartel could do whatever they wanted with his three trusted henchmen. For all his frustrations with Amato's late payments, Miguel couldn't help but to appreciate the man's flair for the dramatic. He accepted the collateral, but warned Amato that if he didn't meet his obligations, his men would be paying the price. It took a few months, but by the end of 1992, Amato had paid Miguel back the millions owed. His gambit seemed to have worked. From then on, he and the Cali cartel maintained their highly productive business relationship with little incident. But back home in Mexico, a power struggle threatened to upend all the alliances he had built. At the dawn of 1993, the reigning drug lord in Juarez, Rafael Aguilar Guajardo, was growing tired of paying bribes to the Mexican federal police. He boldly presented the officials on his payroll with an ultimatum. Either stop demanding he pay weekly protection fees, or he'd go public with information on every government official who'd ever accepted bribes from him. By threatening to expose the government's corruption, Aguilar had made the exact same misstep as his predecessor, Pablo Acosta. And once again, Amado Carrillo saw an opportunity to spin the crisis to his own benefit. In April of 1993, as Aguilar awaited an answer from the police, the 43-year-old drug baron took his family on a vacation to a resort in Cancun. Amado had urged his superior to disappear until the situation was resolved. And he did. Unfortunately, he told Amato exactly where he was disappearing to. Aguilar and his family had just returned to shore from a submarine tour when three armed men stormed the resort, machine guns raised. In a matter of minutes, the salty scent of ocean air was replaced with the sour stench of burnt metal and death. Aguilar Guajardo was dead before he hit the ground. His wife and 11-year-old son were wounded in the attack, though both survived. An American woman on vacation from her home in Colorado was also killed in the crossfire. Police arrested the three shooters on the highway fleeing the scene. It was never confirmed by the shooters themselves, but the prevailing theory among both Mexican and American law enforcement was that Amato had ordered the hit on Aguilar as a favor to the corrupt Mexican authorities he'd threatened to expose. Nobody had more to gain from Aguilar's death. With him gone, all of Juarez fell to the Lord of the Skies. Amato had long thrived as the man behind the throne. He had built an empire, and become one of the most important drug traffickers in Mexico, all while avoiding the scrutiny that came with leadership. Now, a 200-mile stretch of the central border was his and his alone. 
but so was the international spotlight that came with it. When we come back, we'll look at how Amado's role atop the Juarez cartel put him firmly within the crosshairs of the U.S. government and also made him a target for his rivals in Mexico. Now, back to the story. By 1995, Amado Carrillo Fuentes was on top of the world. Nearly two full decades after he had started out overseeing his uncle's marijuana fields in the remote corners of Sinaloa, the 39-year-old kingpin sat atop the throne of a kingdom of his own creation. In the years since he'd taken over as chief of the Juarez cartel, Amado had already made some significant changes. He'd brought in his brother, Vicente Carrillo Fuentes, to help him run things in Juarez. Together, the two men set out to shepherd Mexico's old-school drug world into the modern era. In working with the Cali cartel, Amado had come to appreciate the Colombian organization's use of high-tech gadgetry. In the early 90s, that included beepers, fax machines, and data encryption. Amato's organization was one of the first cartels to utilize cell phones when they came to Mexico in the early 90s. He also used sophisticated scanners to intercept radio transmissions from the Mexican federal police and military to ensure his cocaine shipments avoided detection. The Juarez cartel also came to be known for its more low-tech innovations. By the mid-90s, police knew smugglers tended to install hidden compartments under the bottoms of vehicles. So Amato had his semi-trucks outfitted with sliding compartments in the roof instead. He also made a habit of spraying his trucks with butane gas to mask the smell of the cocaine, a trick he'd learned from Pablo Acosta nearly a decade earlier. Besides their technological prowess, Amato admired the Cali cartel's terrorist cell-like structure, which divided the organization's functions into separate arms that never interacted. Even if one entire department fell, the rest of the cartel would continue to run smoothly. Amato soon implemented this within the Juarez cartel, compartmentalizing his smugglers, truckers, and warehouse workers so that if a member of one group was arrested, they wouldn't know enough to ensnare the others. This level of planning and organization was unheard of in Mexico's drug underworld. In fact, Amado was among the first Mexican drug lords to recognize that he was no longer running a small-time dope smuggling operation, but a billion-dollar international enterprise. Estimates had Amado's business bringing in billions of dollars each year, putting his own total net worth at north of $25 billion. Driving that growth was the tried-and-true corporate strategy of profit-sharing. Amato's many lieutenants took home a set percentage of the cartel's monthly profits, so if the organization had a down month, everyone suffered. And if they excelled, everyone reaped the rewards. Amato's shift into an organized corporate structure didn't lend him any veil of legitimacy. With the assassination of Rafael Aguilar Guajardo in 1993, Amato replaced his former boss as the second highest ranking Mexican trafficker on the FBI's most wanted list. The first was Juan Garcia Abrego, the head of Mexico's Gulf Cartel. But if Amato was concerned at all, he made no show of it. 
Throughout the mid-90s, American law enforcement watched helplessly as Amato and his brother Vicente set up a distribution network to transport and sell narcotics within the United States. Until now, Amato's interest in the drug trade had stopped at the U.S. border. Now he was moving in on the major U.S. markets that had long been controlled by the Colombian cartels. In 1993, the Medellin cartel's power had taken a hit after Pablo Escobar was killed in a shootout with the Colombian police. Authorities had then turned their attention to bringing down the Cali cartel, which culminated in the arrest of Amado's longtime business associate, Miguel Rodriguez Orihuela, in August of 1995. The rest of the cartel's leadership was arrested at around the same time. The Medellin and Cali cartels were still operational enough to maintain their cocaine production, but their distribution network in the United States was faltering. Their previously undisputed strongholds along the East Coast were now up for grabs. In the mid-90s, Amato and Vicente easily carved themselves a significant role in the drug markets in the Southwest, Midwest, and West Coast. But when the Carrillo Fuentes brothers set their sights on the East Coast, they were met by other Mexican traffickers with similar aspirations. Chief among them was Juan Garcia Abrego, Mexico's most wanted man, and the head of the rival Gulf Cartel. Garcia Abrego was a dangerous enemy to have, so much so that the FBI was offering a $2 million reward for any information that might lead to his capture. However, the Gulf Cartel leader was less concerned about the FBI's pursuit than he was about Amado Carrillo Fuentes and his overzealous expansions. In the spring of 1995, Amado took his family to the Ochoa Bali High restaurant, an upscale eatery in Mexico City, for what he hoped would be a relaxing family dinner. It was rare that Amado went out like this. He was a deeply private man. To this day, the only public information about his family are the names of his wife, Leslie Ariaga Carrillo. His wife, Leslie, had complained to him about the eight armed security guards Amato had brought along to dinner. But as much as Amato would have liked to believe in the unwritten rule that families were off limits, he knew there was no honor among criminals. The meal was delicious. Amato and his family were so engaged with their food that they didn't even notice the policemen who had stormed in, armed with riot gear and automatic weapons. It was one of Amato's security guards who first noticed them. He leapt up from his chair, raising his weapon to fire. The assassins fired first. Bullets ripped through the guard, sending him crashing to the floor. Amato quickly flipped his own table and huddled his family behind its hull. He watched as the gunman slaughtered two more of his men in a hail of bullets. The assassins then turned their guns on an architect seated near the door, who they had apparently mistaken for Amato. He was killed instantly, and the gunmen were gone before he had even hit the ground. When it was over, Amato calmly crawled out from behind the table and led his family right out the restaurant's front doors. Police informants soon identified the man behind the attempted assassination as none other than Juan Garcia Abrego, Amato's Gulf Cartel rival. Amato and his family had emerged unscathed, but he had no intention of letting the attack go unpunished. 
Over the next year, close to 200 people died from narcotics-related homicides in Juarez alone. This number included both Abrego's men and scores of Amado's own, as well as civilians who were caught in the crossfire. Amado's warpath continued until the turn of the new year in 1996, when the burgeoning war came to an abrupt conclusion. On January 14, 1996, Mexican federal police besieged Juan Garcia Abrego's home in Monterey, Mexico. He was arrested and extradited to the United States within a matter of hours. There, he would stand trial for money laundering and conspiracy to distribute, possess, and import cocaine. After nearly a year, the Gulf Juarez feud was over almost as quickly as it had begun. But while Amado was celebrating Garcia Abrego's demise, members of the Mexican government were already busy plotting his own. Coming up, we'll learn how Amado's brief time as Mexico's most wanted man led to his untimely demise. Now, back to the story. Amado Carrillo Fuentes was feeling like a man on top of the world in January of 1996. His drug trafficking empire was raking in hundreds of millions of dollars each month, and his rival, Juan Garcia Abrego, was facing upwards of 40 years in a U.S. federal prison. To avoid facing the same fate, Amado dutifully paid upwards of $50 million each month to his connections in the Mexican government. He knew better than anyone what happened to drug traffickers who failed to keep their federal overseers appeased. In 1987, Gabriel Zaid famously wrote that, corruption is not a disagreeable characteristic of the Mexican political system. It is the system. But in even the most functional police system, there are always a few renegade officers who try and break the rules. In the mid-1990s, General José de Jesús Gutiérrez Rebollo, a career military man of over 40 years, was appointed as the head of Mexico's anti-drug task force, the National Institute to Combat Drugs. His directive was simple, clean up the drug trade by whatever means necessary. Rebollo's position gave him access to all kinds of privileged intelligence from the United States, including anti-drug investigations, interdiction programs, and informant lists. He flew to Washington, D.C. to sit in on classified law enforcement briefings and worked closely with President Bill Clinton's anti-drug czar, Barry McCaffrey. McCaffrey's admiration of Rebollo was so great that he once praised the Mexican general as, quote, a soldier of absolute unquestioned integrity. It was this unquestionable integrity that made General Rebollo the ideal candidate to capture Amado Carrillo Fuentes. In January 1996, just a week after Juan Garcia Abrego was apprehended, the Carrillo Fuentes family gathered on a remote Sinaloa ranch for the wedding of Amado's sister. For the family, it was a day meant for celebration. But for General Rebollo and the Mexican Federal Police, it was an opportunity to see Mexico's most wanted criminal brought to justice. The police crept through the mountain woodlands surrounding the property, then flooded the Sinaloa ranch, machine guns at the ready, 
prepared for a fight from the infamous Lord of the Skies. What they found instead was a ranch full of horrified wedding patrons, no Amato in sight. Amato's police connections had tipped him off about the impending raid just minutes beforehand. He had left the ceremony right before the police arrived. Once again, Amato's friends in high places had saved him. But the fact that the police would even dare to pursue Amato at all represented a worrying change in the political atmosphere. Publicly, General Raboyo expressed frustration about Amato slipping from his capture. But privately, Raboyo's belief in his own ability to stop the drug trade had already begun to falter. For all Raboyo's posturing, Amato knew he was no better than any other civil servant. His career might be morally rewarding, but it certainly wasn't rewarding financially. Amato, now almost 40 himself, recognized that the aging Raboyo needed to start thinking about taking care of himself and his family after his time with the government reached its end. Shortly after the failed raid, Amato asked his top lieutenant, Eduardo Gonzalez Curarte, to reach out to the general in hopes of recruiting him to the cause. He knew it was a long shot, but he figured it wouldn't hurt to try. His gamble paid off in spades. Surprisingly, the reputable general agreed to the bribe immediately, and the two men entered into an incredibly fruitful relationship, for a short time at least. In February of 1997, U.S. and Mexican authorities were stunned to discover that Raboyo was living in an expensive apartment, way beyond the pay grade of a public servant. Their suspicions were immediate, and just weeks later, they received the smoking gun. An anonymous informant provided the police with a tape recording of General Raboyo and Amado Carrillo Fuentes discussing payments to be made in exchange for ignoring Amado's drug smuggling activities. On February 19, 1997, Enrique Cervantes, the Mexican defense minister, held a press conference where he publicly accused General Raboyo of shielding Amado Carrillo Fuentes from prosecution. Upon seeing the news, Raboyo collapsed of a heart attack. Before the end of the day, the police had arrived at the hospital to arrest him on charges of bribery, drug trafficking, and aiding in illegal activities. At his trial, Raboyo's attorney, Arturo Gonzalez Vasquez, argued that the government's interest in seeing Raboyo and Amado Carrillo Fuentes brought to justice had little to do with amending Mexico's corruption problems. Instead, it was the work of Amado's rivals, who were using their own contacts in the Mexican military to direct public attention away from themselves. Whether or not Gonzalez Vasquez was correct, it mattered very little to his client's legal defense. The authorities presented evidence that Raboyo hadn't just been ignoring Amato's activities, he had been supplying him with armored cars and encrypted cell phones. General Raboyo was swiftly sentenced to 31 years in prison. As 1997 wore on, Amato knew he was in serious trouble. Raboyo's conviction, along with the United States' decision to decertify Mexico as an ally in the war on drugs, had placed enormous pressure on Mexican President Ernesto Zedillo to see Amado tried for his crimes. 
Amato, always a man who valued his privacy, became a total recluse. He rarely went outside, never slept in the same place two nights in a row, and communicated with his wife and children only over the phone. For transport between safe houses, Amato crafted a vehicle that would make even James Bond blush. He equipped a Dodge Ram pickup with armor plating and solid rubber tires that prevented bullet-induced blowouts. Inside the truck's cab, a switch was installed along the bottom of the dashboard that would fill the cab up with smoke, allowing for a quick and covert escape. Another switch would leave an oil slick in the truck's wake, and another would shoot out a canister filled with shrapnel. Amato's Batmobile-like getaway car quickly lost much of its value, however, after he received word that the Mexican police had identified the vehicle. In the spring of 1997, he transferred all the lavish accessories from his now useless Dodge Ram into a less suspicious vehicle, an ambulance. Still, Amato knew he couldn't outrun the government forever. He'd seen the end of this story too many times. He wouldn't wait around for the police or a rival to find him. As spring turned to summer, Amato flew to the Cayman Islands. He had his family move to Chile, where they'd be safe even if he was captured. In July 1997, Amato sent his top aide, Eduardo Gonzalez Quirarte, to negotiate with the Mexican military. Accounts of what happened at the meeting differ depending on who's telling the story. According to Mexican military officials, Amado's offer of a $5 million bribe in exchange for an end to the pursuit was rejected outright. But according to Amado's camp, the military accepted the bribe only to renege on the deal after they received the money. Either way, Amado was out of options. With bribery and violence off the table, Amado had no choice but to get unconventional. On July 4, 1997, Amado flew back into Mexico City. He checked into the Santa Monica Hospital under a false name. Determined to make himself unrecognizable to authorities, Amado had hired two doctors from his native state of Sinaloa and a third from Colombia to perform a massive plastic surgery operation. Over the course of eight and a half hours, Doctors removed over 30 pounds of fat from Amato's body, changed the shape of his eyes and nose, and even broke Amato's jaw and inserted a prosthetic to alter his jawline. Midway through the surgery, Amato's heart stopped. His doctors rushed to revive him, both out of concern for him as a patient and out of concern for themselves if the Lord of the Skies died on their watch. Their attempts failed. Amado Carrillo Fuentes died on the surgeon's table. At 40 years old, the Lord of the Skies was no more. The doctors attributed the sudden heart failure to Amado's heart being weakened from his years of recreational cocaine use. But Mariano Aran Salvetti, the new head of Mexico's anti-drug agency, surmised from the autopsy that the doctors had deliberately given Amado too much anesthetic. The Juarez cartel didn't care if it was an accident or not. In November 1997, the bodies of the three doctors were discovered inside 66-gallon oil drums along a Mexico City highway. Each had been tortured, shot and strangled, 
and one of the victim's bodies had burn marks all along his neck. In the months following his death, rumors swirled that Amado Carrillo Fuentes was still alive and had faked his own death so that he could retire to a quiet life in Cuba. The Mexican authorities and DEA dismissed the claims, but they had to concede there was very little verified evidence that the unrecognizable body on the surgeon's table was actually Amato. Amato Carrillo Fuentes was laid to rest at his family's ranch in Sinaloa. Over 1,000 people came to pay their respects to a man whose ascent to the top of the Mexican underworld had inspired those with legal and illegal aspirations alike. The funeral's patrons arrived bearing wreaths that cost more than the young Amato would have made in a week during the start of his career as a marijuana farmer. Among the flowers that arrived, the Carrillo Fuentes family noticed a wreath comprised entirely of black roses. After the funeral service, they opened the card and found the message. All good things come to those who know how to wait. The note was signed by the Ochoa family, the Medellin cartel leaders whose uncle had been killed by Amato two years earlier. The message came as little surprise to Amato's brother Vicente. Amato's death had left him as the head of the Juarez cartel, a title he was more than happy to accept. But his brother's death had made Juarez a target for rivals, including Joaquin Guzman Loera, better known as El Chapo, the leader of the Sinaloa cartel. If the Mexican government thought that Amado Carrillo Fuentes' death would put an end to the violence in Juarez, they were sorely mistaken. For all the violence Amado had caused during his lifetime, the power vacuum left by his death led to more bloodshed than anyone could have anticipated. Over the next 10 years, the war between the Sinaloa and Juarez cartels claimed the lives of more than 8,000 people, making it one of the bloodiest conflicts not only in the history of Mexico, but in the history of all of North America. In 2007, President Felipe Calderon began deploying military troops to Juarez to quell the violence. Unfortunately, this move had the opposite effect. Violence in Juarez spiked as a result of Calderon's militant anti-drug policies. And in 2008, Mexico's yearly death toll from drug-related violence climbed to nearly 6,300. From 2007 to 2016, an estimated 80,000 people have died from cartel-related violence in Mexico. Only a small percentage of those deaths can be attributed to the Juarez cartel, because, as General Rebollo's lawyer argued back in 1997, the problem is much larger than one single kingpin or corrupt official. Even now, more than 20 years after his death, the shadow of Amado Carrillo Fuentes' legacy still hangs over Juarez like a dark cloud. Each airplane that flies overhead is a reminder of the city's brutal history. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. 
Several of you have asked how to help us. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Daniel Ocho and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.